RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, a show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me as usual is Brian. Hey, Dusty. Hey, Brian. And Mike. Hey, Dusty. Now, today, joining us, we have Tanner from the Shadow of the Cabal. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So Tanner ran us through, uh, gosh, a little over a week ago at this point, ran us through his one-shot convention game, I guess we should call it, your original adventure, Holy Matrimony. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll talk about, we're going to do a a recap of that game and what we all learned. So Tanner, do you want to talk about Shadow of the Cabal a bit and uh, Holy Matrimony? Sure, yeah. So um, like Dusty said, I run and GM the Shadow of the Cabal podcast on the RPG Academy Network. Um, We're an actual play, and we play Legend of the Five Rings, which is the game that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I've been on the show a couple other times, and it's been a blast every single time. I've talked about my goof-ups, but today hopefully we can talk about something a little bit more positive because I think we all had a pretty good time with it. There are no goof ups that I recall on your end, anyway. Maybe on mine. Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, ch- we'll compare notes on that. Um, no, it was a great time, and um, I these guys basically invited me back to say if we wanted to collaborate again, and um, I took them up on that, and I ran an adventure for them. Um, this adventure, is, I believe, this is the fourth time I've run it, and like Dusty said, I have run this one at convention, but this is sort of my go-to adventure of I want to introduce somebody to Legend of the Five Rings. Um, and if by the end of this you enjoyed listening to this, I have a whole campaign of Legend of the Five Rings that we just finished in Shadow of the Cabal. Um, 49 episodes, each about an hour long. So if you want to go back and dig into this, if this sounds interesting to you, there's a lot there to dig into. Um, one last thing I'll say about the adventure. We may or may not get into sort of details about it, but I have this adventure posted publicly for free on my website, which I'm sure they will link in the description of the podcast here. And uh, if you want to take a look at it, you absolutely can. If you want to run it, it is totally free to do so. Um, But we may or may not be getting into some pertinent details of it if they come up. So just a vague spoiler warning. So if this is an adventure that you have any interest in and you want to pass it off to your GM before hearing about it, you might want to do that. But if you're a GM and you kind of want some insight as to how I ran the adventure too, you can feel free to keep listening. So I'll have this posted at tfradio.net slash rpgll049. Awesome. So yeah, we will have our adventure linked there. And um, I love hearing about when people run it. So I'm excited to get into this episode and uh, how it shook out this time. Awesome. So let's start off and do it, doing our, our new usual thing of actually going around and, and rating the game. And uh, Tanner, if you don't mind, we'll start, and then we'll have you rate us as players. So sure. one to ten scale. Brian, why don't you lead off? How was the session? One to ten. No blowing can smoke I, here. I need, I need no, honest answers. Uh, <laughs> can I do half point increments? Sure, man. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Yeah. Oh, you stole my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go eight then. I'll just do solid eight. Dude, I'm going to go... I mean... 10, 10 is hard. 10, 10 is amazing. I'm going to go 9. I can't think of an easy way to improve this game. Yeah. Like, taking this game from a 9 to a 10 would involve going from a really amazing home game to, like, critical role level. Right, and, life-changing level. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm going 8.5 just real quick because I had a hard time understanding sort of my character a little bit, uh, but I still had a blast. 
Yeah. Mm. That that would kind of be my, my same feedback with an eight. I had a little difficulty understanding the character, and I think we're probably going to talk about this a little more, but not understanding the culture of the L5R world made it a little difficult for, for barrier of entry, right? I, so after this first game, I feel like I'm more connected, and I feel like future games in L5R would be smooth sailing. I was going to say, I think I understand it. Uh, I And we had a post-mortem discussion where we talked about it, uh, Again, it, it's kind of like a an amped up version of feudal Japan. It's like what everybody thinks feudal Japan was actually like. I like to uh, describe it as a white man's cartoon imagination of what <laughs> feudal Japan is. Yeah, and that was had the Ninja Turtles traveled back in time. <laughs> this is where they would have gone. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I agree with that. Wait, yeah, that's the third movie they did that. Oh, fair. Oh, it wasn't. God. It wasn't that. Did they travel through time in that? Yeah, they, they went back to feudal Japan. I have it on yeah. Blu-ray. I just figured they were like in like in a actor's recreation or something we have I, talked I mean, we have talked it, about doing that as a movie review and just throwing it up there and not saying anything about it <laughs> <laughs> that, if you do awesome. that i want you to treat it completely seriously yeah yeah yeah, 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 sure. yeah. that'd be amazing all right i was gonna ask for initial thoughts but i think we have those so, so for both of brian and mike both you guys it was the whole completely different culture yeah. that that was a bit of a barrier to the game yeah usually for me i i like some sort of more of a hook for me where i can throw myself into it and like i think oh god if i was literally if i woke up tomorrow morning and i was in feudal japan or i was in rokugan could i survive and the answer is no <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. that, that that drew me to the, so with my nine that the different culture the completely alien way of interacting that drew me to the game i, I mean i get tired of broadswords and and torches and it's it's fun to do something a little different it's fun to throw some variety out there but tanner so no blowing smoke, us as players, one to ten, and, and then your your quick thoughts on that. Do I rate you individually, or do I? <laughs> Ooh, are, we you? Are, are, are we different enough? No, please, no. please do. So. I, I think that you guys were an eight and a half as well, if we're going to go on the half Ooh. point scale, because um, like you said, there was some sort of hesitation, but that was mainly blown out by the heart. fact that you were trying to engage and you were thinking about the game and nobody was ever checked out. Like you guys were all thinking in character too, which is definitely the headspace that I want you to be in. So, and you guys obviously applied yourself, you role played and you, uh, you sorted the problem out and role played your, um, your each one of your secret little missions pretty well. So we'll get to the talking about that too. Awesome. So why don't we start first section of the show notes with, with the culture. So Tanner, you used a, a good word in, in our in our live postmortem immediately after the game. You, you described L5R as, as a problematic game, using problematic in the sociology context, right? Right. So you've played more of it than I have, but but I'll throw my thoughts out there first. I it's it's feudal Japan, but not. It it, it looks like it looks like feudal Japan, but it's just not at all. And to me, I don't find that to be especially culturally. A problem because I think Dungeons and Dragons has almost nothing to do with how medieval Europe was. Right. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you just shattered Brian's bubble. <laughs> I mean, the, the way serfs were treated in, in medieval Europe, and, and and you know the the complete iron fistedness of of the feudal system, and just the the sickening reality of that, and, and how tough it would have been to, to make your way as anyone other than someone lucky enough to have been born a noble. Um. The reality of that is so different than the game we play, yeah. where pretty much every townsperson can read. There are lots of businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Like D and D is this really 
Disney version of medieval Europe. Yeah. And I think Rokugan is the same thing for Japan. I think Rokugan is a little bit more honest about what peasants are and things like that it, when it comes to that. And it, it definitely tries to lay into that a little bit. I will say before we have this conversation, take this with a heap of salt because we are four adult white men, um, mm-hmm. white middle-class men f- from America. So um, yeah, I make no bones about the fact that L5R could be seen as a quote unquote like problematic game. And I think that if the themes of the game and stuff and the sort of cultural appropriation that comes with it is something that's distasteful to you, I don't think you're in the wrong at all. It's not a game that's for everybody. And I'm not saying that you should overlook that or anything. But for me personally, I try really not to lay into that as best as a middle-class white American man can, at least. Um, I make no bones about that it is not Japan, and I try not to lay too hard into real history or um, other stuff. I try to treat it as much of... I try to treat it like the Game of Thrones version of Europe, you know, where clearly, yes, there is some inspiration, stuff like that from there, but at at its fundament, it's not... I don't think that it's really... Hold on, let me choose my words carefully in this part um (laughs) i don't think that if you play this game and you enjoy it that you're a bad person but i understand why people have a distaste for it especially because it takes some problematic things from history and runs with it and i think all the best l5r adventures and gms and players and games are critical of that and that is that criticism is part of the play experience. I think if you play this game and you think the samurai are right and good people, then I think you're (laughs) verging into territory that could be an issue. But as long as you can keep the perspective that this is a fictional game and if you're playing it at your own table and you're not warping your worldview, you're not hurting anybody by playing it, I don't think it's really that much of an issue if you find something that you can sink your teeth into and engage with. That's a great way to summarize that. So, so thinking about that in in a public open setting, how would how do you approach that in a con game? Right? Have you have you had any experiences in a con with with that cultural question? I have. Um, I have run this game at a convention once. Um, I advertised it in sort of the convention program in the sign up list uh, very openly. It's like, hey, this is a game inspired by fantasy feudal Japan, and this adventure specifically. Um, I don't think really lays into the problematic areas as much as you could write an adventure in L5R to do so. Um, This adventure is kind of designed to be a little bit of an island in its own little bubble in Rokugan. And when you have control of that and the elements that you introduce in this village that we played our adventure in, I think that you have a little bit more control on that. But if you open up wider Rokugan there can be issues. And I'm not going to say that there's not issues with Rokugan's world building. Um, there are. It They kind of remind me of like EU Star Wars novels in the 90s where they were just letting <laughs> any freelancer write anything they want. And some people had really good ideas and some were really <laughs> gross dudes who wrote some gross crap. And I think like Star Wars, like Rokugan, the burden is on the GM and the group to decide what their level of society of social comfort is with the material presented. And if you're playing it and you find it distasteful, 
you don't have to play it. It's okay to stop. And I totally, like I said, understand if it's not for anybody. But for me, it's one of the worlds that I've been able to dig into the most and have some really enjoyable experiences that I've never had in any other RPGs. But yeah, I'm not going to defend <laughs> that. I'm not dying on the hill of Rokugan. I totally understand no, yeah. where everyone yeah. comes from with it. And if it's distasteful for you, I get it. I happen to enjoy it. And I try not to lean into that stuff too hard. So all that said, and then that's that's real talk. I mean, the first time I played L5R, these are thought that cultural, cultural appropriation is a phrase that went through my mind. In fact, if you dig through the archives of, of my posts on Reddit and, and the Rokugan subreddit, someone posted, hey, we're going to ask John Wick a bunch of questions. Does anyone have any questions? And, and my question was, hey, how do you approach the whole cultural appropriation issue? How do you think about that in, in your games? That question was not picked up for the AMA. So, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, like you said, and there are certain things that are more problematic, like Bushido, for an example, which um, is a big part. A fictionalized version of Bushido is a big part of Rokugan and L5R. Um, historical Bushido is an anachronism that was invented in the 20s and 30s during Imperial Japan to justify war crimes. So. You just have to, and, and like I said, I totally understand why people find that distasteful to sort of put a fantasy bent on that. But as I said earlier, I think if you play this game enough, you will realize that the point of Bushido is that it's impossible to uphold and the game itself is a criticism of it. Um, I'm not defending that because there are plenty of people who play it straight and like there is sort of a, a gross subset of the fan who kind of likes being a samurai and being in power and being a one percenter in this world of Rokugan and there's different scenes in any role-playing game and it's just up to you to sort of treat stuff with respect and treat stuff tastefully when you can with your own home group wow I you actually really just opened my eyes about Rokugan in, in respect to you could literally play this as almost oh dust you're the you're the English major is pastiche the right word uh, a satire. Satire. Satire yeah. is a good way of yeah. yes. Yeah, it's 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 a very straight laced satire. Right. And that is I never considered that. That is incredibly yeah. interesting. I yeah. think I think um if you are someone who plays L five R a lot, there is definitely that arc of you start and you read the book and you make characters and you play your first couple sessions and you're like, Wow, Bushido is really hard and wow, shouldn't it be great to be all this honorable and all this crap? And then at least if you're me, you you get the cynical hat on and you say, Wow, Bushido is such a toxic ideology that's bad for the people who do it and for the people it affects. What? Let's examine that. And so if you want to listen to 47 episodes of that, Shadow of the Cabal is out there where <laughs> it is a extended skewering of how Bushido is awful. So I don't know. I Not everybody plays the game like that. There are definitely people who play it straight-laced and who play it straight. Um, I can't do that anymore. I could at a time when I was introduced to it and I was a little bit less socially aware um but like i said if you're having fun and you're not cultivating a toxic worldview in your brain and you're not hurting other people i don't think there's any issue with playing this game so i think we've said plenty about that what i will say as follow-on to that as, as just to all this discussion if you find this interesting um i really am a huge fan of tanner's show and would encourage you to listen to it everything he's talking about more than any other actual play that i've listened to that show operates on a number of levels it reminds me of the commentary, frankly, to uh, Starship Troopers, where they interviewed the director and he talked about he was trying so hard to make the humans the bad guys, yet when people went to the theater to watch the movie, 
they were like, yeah, go humans. And like, wait, 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 like, whoa, wait, whoa. No. <laughs> You're supposed to cheer for the bugs. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a movie about how fascism is bad. Yeah. Yes. And everyone just rooted for the humans. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah, Starship Troopers. I never thought about it. That is the best analogy for Rokugan I can think of, where... When you're under the age of 16 and you play this, you're like, wow, cool, samurai and stuff. But as you get older and hopefully more socially conscious, you can look at it in a critical lens. And the thing that is fun is, like you said, like playing Rico's Roughnecks, but playing them straight, which is fascism (laughs) is good. I can't wait to kill until I become a citizen. Like, yikes. But it's it's, (laughs) in Starship Troopers, it's played for like black comedy, dark laughs the whole time, basically. Yeah. Rokugan, it doesn't really lay into the laughs. I think that the way I play it is exactly like seeing Starship Troopers as an adult and having a critical opinion on it. That's a really yeah, and, good point. And ironically, the book Starship Troopers is completely pro-military. Right. Is it? Is it yeah. L. Ron Hubbard? No, the no. book is uh, ba ba ba. Heinlein, right? Yes. Oh, Robert, Heinlein? Robert, Heinlein? Yeah, Robert Heinlein. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought it was Hubbard for we, some we, reason. We have covered this topic so well. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> let, let, let's. Sorry. Last thing I want to say about culture, Brian. Not no more about the the culture itself, but. You mentioned several times in the postmortem we had immediately after the game, and even before we started recording, about how or, or how you found the culture a barrier to engage with NPCs and, and role play. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Just just as far as yes. how a different culture affected the game for you? Yeah. So, um, so I anchored in on this idea that Dusty shared when we were selecting which character we were going to play. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, and these guys know this, is Tombstone. I love that movie. I watch it every Thanksgiving. And uh, it's one of those things that we we mostly know word for word, and it's just a lot of fun. And Dusty described my character as sort of like Doc Holliday. And I'm like, wow, I love that idea. That is awesome. But I found myself, how do I play Doc Holliday in this artificial feudal Japan? And, oh, hey, he's never killed anybody. And right. he would be really depressed if he did. And it's it's like wow, too many late, like too many things going on at once, and trying to think through that. I I mean, I was overwhelmed is not the right word, but trying to actually no, actually overwhelmed is probably the right word because when I was trying to think, well, how should I approach this? How should I approach this? I mostly just sat there and sort of thought about it and did not a whole lot of anything until about halfway through the game, or maybe even more. You know what though? I think this was a cerebral game for all of us, yeah, and, and not in oh, a yeah. bad way. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. agreed, agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. Um, one, right, cool. th- one thing I'll say about that is that uh, I that is definitely something that goes on, and I think um, in Shadow of the Cabal, Justin he is our he is a pretty passive player. I love him, but he's he's passive. He he's likes to assess the situation a little bit before acting. But when he acts, boy does he act. Um, but we played a campaign off mic together before when we first met met each other, and it took him eight sessions to get to the point where he felt like he could just instinctively know the Rokugan thing to do in a situation. So L5R definitely gives you a restricted canvas and says paint a picture on it. It doesn't give you a blank open wide canvas like something like D&D does where it says, hey, adventure, 
It says, here, yeah. he- here is a meticulous coloring book. You may color whatever you want, but color between the lines if you want to do it right. And again, not for everybody. And it's something that gets a little bit easier if you can inoculate yourself to it, it over time. It's an adult coloring book. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Very detailed. Yeah. Use all the colors. Yeah. Use the colors right. And I love the way you described that too, because it, it's an adult coloring book. This was, this was a very adult game. Yeah. Tanner, yeah. when you appeared on our show before, you said L5R works best when you take it seriously. Right. And and we did that, and and you're right. If if, if you tried to funhouse this game, it would just fall apart. Which is yeah. exactly what we did normally, when we normally did. when we tried to play the game in five E. Oh right. yeah, absolutely. Yes, that absolutely. is what we did. Yeah, yeah, that and is what we did. The melodrama serves it, and if you take the if you imagine yourself as a soap opera character, and what would a soap opera character do in this? Like, it is kind of easy to like think of the humorous points of that, but um, just sort of immersing immersing yourself and stepping into the magic circle where you're not thinking character versus player you are acting as character um, i mean so there's a term in the game that in another context means something entirely different and we did not giggle when it came up we did not i am very proud of all of us we, that did, we giggle. did not giggle. When, we, when we did our own rokugan play in d in dne 5e we giggled a lot for yep. like half an hour straight y'all yeah. talking about the taint yeah. <laughs> yeah we are yes they had a so chance to reboot we're, that, but yeah. We're giggling now, but we didn't giggle at the time. We did not. I'm proud of myself for that. Yeah. Let's talk about the system. Let's talk about 4E. So specifically, by the way, L5R 4E. So when Brian says we played in 5E, that could be confusing now. Yes, absolutely. Because now, yeah. L5R 5E is now out. Yes. What Brian means is that the only game we've played in the Rokugan universe was a game, we talked about it many episodes ago. Uh, we actually had Tanner on the show for it. I ran a game in Dungeons and Dragons 5e that took place in Rokugan just to have a, you know, something different, something like I said, other than torches and broadswords. And uh, that game turned into a funhouse goofball fest. And, yeah. and I contributed to that. We all did. But uh, the 4e system. Legend of the Five it, Rings 4e. L5R 4e. Any thoughts on that, guys? I, I really liked it. Um, I think it's one of the things we talked about in the in the ad hoc uh, kind of lessons learned right after the game is the the dice mechanics are complex. So I think it really worked well that we had that macro for for automatic dice rolling. But I, I really like the idea of roll X number of dice, keep X number of dice. That's your result. I mean, once once you get the math done, it's it's a pretty fairly simple system. Yeah, it it felt more natural after uh, rolling. I mean, well, we didn't roll; we used a macro. But after going through a couple of rounds of it, it felt way more natural. And honestly, it feels more natural than trying to do this in uh, Savage Worlds. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, one thing I'll say, just for anybody who's wondering, I am not local to these guys. I am a remote guest. So we did play over Roll20, and we did set up some macros. And I think we'll talk a little bit about the Roll20 experience later on. But yeah, yep. we had we had the advantage. It is a little bit of a mathy system when it comes to the di- dice mechanic. Um, not to say that in person you can't learn to do it quickly, but it's if you're learning the game, it's just another barrier of entry that's sort of removed so that you can just get into the game and not have to worry about the dice math and the social math of what your character is. I, I think we've established that I like games that are probably more complex than they need to be just for the sake of the complexity of it and this isn't something that's more complex than it needs to be but it 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 is much more straightforward than what was the game that we played with um uh dm scotty pocket pocket fantasy yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. where that was where that was as lean and bare bones as possible this was actually a nice balance between it was it was this was i, I would say 
it feels more complicated, but again, this is the first game we game we played, but it feels more complicated than D and D five E to me. I'd agree with that assessment. Um But I, it's it's but it's it's not so complex that it's unwieldy. Correct. Yeah. yeah I've um I've played something close to fifty sessions of four E now. Um what love there was once in my heart for it is now gone. <laughs> um, it, it is for me. I mean, you, oh, God, I've ranted at length on podcasts about how I feel about it. Basically the way I feel about it is that it's a, it's a used car that you got for a really good deal. And once you've driven it for a hundred thousand miles, the little niggling things about it start to add up. And I am happy that I'm not playing it regularly anymore, but I don't hate it. That's, that's, a, that's a good analogy. I could see over time quite a few things starting to get on my nerves. Yeah, and for us, it was new enough that it was that it was fun. I will say, Tanner, I, I've heard your rants at length. <laughs> Sorry, and, and, and we, no, 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 and, and they've been good. I've I've enjoyed them. One thing that you've said about it that I saw every combat, and there were two combats. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, sort of. There were two combats. There were yeah, no, no. There were there were two combats. Yeah, we rolled it into turned shit into twice. sort of three combats. Yeah, yeah. So every combat was extremely one-sided. Yes. Because so so one, once one side gets the advantage, you've said this before that combat's very swingy. Mhm. And uh we definitely saw that and and I think we all liked it because we were on the winning side of both <laughs> those combats. <laughs> by by intent, I you know, I I did not set up any encounters that I felt like could really kill you. I just wanted to put the fear of god in your heart a little bit, you know. <laughs> all right. So system um last thing on the system, Shugenjis, magic users. No, uh, no Shugenja in the pre-made characters for your adventure on purpose. Yes. Um, <laughs> when I designed, so I designed these characters. We didn't make characters. I handed pre-gens uh, to these guys, and I designed these characters for this adventure. I tried to think of an advantage, a disadvantage, a class mechanic, and skills that would be directly applicable to this game. I didn't want to, you know, make an archer character and make you really good at archery and trick shooting and then suddenly throw you into adventure where there was no real opportunity to do that in a way that mattered. So um, I had enough trouble doing that. Shugenja getting like five spells at rank one, only one or two of which I as the GM could see a clear use for in the adventure. Um, I decided to just sort of omit that. And Shugenja are supposed to be pretty rare in Rokugan, only like one in a hundred samurai or something like that. And samurai are only one in ten people in the empire, so there's not many of them around. So I had that good narrative excuse to not have any spellcasters. But yeah, it's just another layer of complexity, and I didn't want to set saddle somebody with a more complex character that had less useful things. Hey, going on. real quick, going back to like the game and the system, um, where did the one in ten samurai? Where did that come from? I mean, is that so? That seems high to me. I was going to say, Brian, uh, I've got some L5R books. I've, I've I'm one of those. RPG players, aren't we all? Where I have so many books that I have never played and probably will never play, much to my wife's consternation. So even though Tanner ran my first game of L5R4E, I've got a bunch of the books. (laughs) There is so much flavor, Brian, where, where I can see that people would absolutely fall in love with this game is of a book, a very small percentage of it is mechanics. I'd say about a quarter of of it or so. Yeah. Most of it is story and beautiful illustrations like paintings like a watercolor look but you know just really gorgeous books with tons and tons of flavor yeah tanner i imagine you grabbed that from some of the flavor yep a little bit of that and then also um doing some research because i got way into this game of historical japan and historical europe of 
you know, what percentage of landed nobility can a country support? In Japan, it's actually a little bit lower. Uh, I believe like the historical figures of like Sengoku Japan were like five to eight percent of everybody what was a samurai. Wow. Yeah, that's that's just interesting to me. I, I would have thought it would have been way lower than that. Yeah, so I decided to inflate that slightly because the L5R is about samurai and it's more interesting if there's more of them. But I think realistically, I don't think there could be that many. But once you start looking at Rokugan realistically and demographics, the whole world falls apart. So I try not to do that very hard. <laughs> cool. So let's talk about the adventure. So the adventure itself, and here's, if you've still been listening despite the spoiler warning, here's the spoiler warning again, you know, discussing the adventure. Tanner, I've got to, especially after my really rough Savage Worlds, Savage Worlds East Texas University games, I've really got to compliment you on the call to action in this adventure. It opens up with a clear mission and clear goals, and, and as a player, I was able to really immediately engage with something that I'm supposed to do, and... You gave us all the agency to go and do those things and make them happen. So, so awesome. Thank you. Awesome opening to an adventure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the the adventure opens with, you know that there's a situation happening. You go there and then the adventure picks up with, oh, this other situation happened on top of it. So you immediately have two things to engage with. And I like to try to include those sorts of choices and pressing issues. Um, I've, I've, I think we've all played in some games where the GM expects you to find their adventure. And I really try to avoid that. Um, especially in the context of a one shot or a convention game, it's like throw out all the part. You guys know each other. If it matters how we can figure that out in play, but you guys all have a reason to work together. Y'all have a reason to be investigating this, uh, this occurrence and here's the occurrence. Oh, and here's another one to go like that. I, I like to get the gears turning and, I mean, we might be, oh, I guess we can talk about this. We're going to be posting the at least the audio and possibly the video of this. So you can see um, I did have about 10 minutes or so of preamble of just world stuff. But once there, I didn't want to bog down with even more narration. So I decided to get you into decision-making points as soon as I could. And to your credit, the 10 minutes of world stuff is, is, is necessary yep. to, yeah. to engage with, with Rokugan. So the the pre-made characters we, we've already talked about a little bit. I will share one fun fact with you, Tanner. Did you realize that I was playing a shredder? What do you mean a shredder? Like the Ninja Turtle shredder? Yeah. So when I when I named him Oroku, is that shredder's shredder, name? Shredder's name is Oroku Saki. Yeah. So Oroku, so so Matsu Oroko was was my in in my head um, the way I got into character. So so here's a here's a cheat that I do, and I want to share this for listeners because it might help. When I know I'm going to play in, in a one-shot game and I don't have a whole campaign to find a character, I steal a character. So it, it, lets me get, it lets me get into character really quickly. Yeah. In my mind, in the world of Rokugan, Shredder's not 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 an antagonist. No, not at all. His people won a thousand years ago. Shredder, yeah. Shredder's very comfortable. So I was playing Shredder in a world that was as he thought it should be. So that's how I played uh, Matsu. And that's, and that's why I named him Oroku. That's awesome. Yeah. I think the reason I didn't pick up on that was because I was born in the year 1992. And so <laughs> <laughs> we're old men. We're old men. We are. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm just poking fun of you guys. Yeah. I, I was, I, <laughs> you could have tipped me off by saying they're babies or something Then I would have picked <laughs> up on it. Awesome. Turtles too. Yeah. Secret of the that's Ooze. Good. Yep. That's good. And then Mike, as always, you played the cop. I played the cop. Hey, but you guys were playing cops in this game. You were playing police lieutenants. You were playing deputies. And um, Mike, to your credit, I want to give you uh, double props. You stepped up and played the social character in this game 
uh, you, you looked at this, the world where it's very alien and foreign and the rules of society are not as what we know them. And then you just said, you decided I'll play the social character and <laughs> you played the face. Awesome. I thank you. I appreciate that. Cause I really felt like I was struggling with it in game. I, no, was, I was constantly at my, at odds with myself of like, am I, am I doing the right thing? Is, is that allowed? I'm just going to do it anyway. And I th- we'll see what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Your instincts were correct a lot of the time. So I think that there is sort of, even if you feel like, you know what you're doing in this game, just because like dusty said, you know, there, there is so much lore to this game and there's so much you can dig into. I think there is an intimidation factor that sort of serves to deter people who, who might have the right idea from trying it. And I, especially in this game, especially in this context as like a one shot, I'm never going to be like a gotcha GM in this game. Maybe if we're 30 sessions into a campaign, yeah, I'll, I'll do a gotcha yeah. if you say something stupid in character. But generally speaking, I like to operate that you know, your characters have grown up in this world. You're all at least in your 20s as characters. You are fully immersed in this world, so your character's never going to say something dumber than you <laughs> unless you really want them to. I also really like that you you gave us our our, uh, our secret initiatives, right? Our secret missions. So so that secret mission kind of helped me key into my character and and put me in a frame of mind of this is this is what I need to also be focusing on in in addition to my to my primary objective. Right. So I gave each of these guys uh, when I handed out the character sheets. Um, each one of them had basically a small paragraph from someone close to them, someone important to them. That was a secret sort of sub objective or condition that they had to or were trying to accomplish. I'm not going to spoil what those are. If you want to, you can listen to them and we talk about them. But um, it adds a little bit of light pvp flavor in this world and i really wanted to get the sense of you three aren't an adventuring party you're your co-workers and each person has sort of their own objective and they're trying to get different things out of the world and the characters and so i'm trying to set up that yeah we're cooperating but you know it's it's a job i mean it's our duty yes it's very important in rokugan but also you know you have other people who expect you to do other things at the same time I love the coworkers analogy. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of what I like to default. Like, you, I mean, you can be friends, sure, but like how good friends are you with the guy whose cube is next to you at work? Like, yeah, you get along with them, sure, for the, for the job, but you might not have a vested interest in making sure that he succeeds at what he wants to do at life at the cost of your own. Man, that's an awesome way to put it. I, I so default to the, the D&D trope that this is a group of, of besties going on adventures and changing the world together and and anyway um i love i also love the secret goals i really liked that they were that they had tension Mm -hmm. like 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 every goal had tension you know with the other goals but they weren't mutually exclusive right and the first time i ran this i handed out goals that were mutually exclusive and i asked my players about that and i got pushback on it from that because um this isn't really a spoiler, but one of the characters that you were playing, uh, Dusty, you're playing a lion clan samurai, and uh, Brian, you're playing a crane clan samurai, and they hate each other. And in my first time I ran this campaign, I gave them directly opposing goals that were mutually exclusive. And in this, they were much more vague and open. Not easy, but there were a little there was a little bit more room for overlap where, yeah, you could accomplish both of them. All right, so... Uh- Last thought on the adventure, and Tanner, this is feedback that I gave you immediately after after the show. Tanner asked for feedback on the adventure, and, and despite 
those of you who listen to our show, how hard we usually are on our own games, we didn't have that much negative feedback to offer. The only thing I had to say, and I really want to cover this because it makes a good point about listening to actual plays. I learned in playing this game that listening to actual plays can and does make you a better player. Like I've listened to Shadow of the Cabal, and it, and it made me better at this game. I understood what a Yuriki is, what a Yuriki should do, how to how to think about justice in this world, how to approach some things about this world. So listening to actual plays really does give you a lot of context and frankly, a lot of ideas. Like I'm sure I was saying things that I've heard Justin or Dakota say in the course of, of your campaign. So mm-hmm. it gives you this whole library of fun ideas to throw out in your own game in, in, in appropriate moments. So listening to actual plays makes you a better player. For sure. Having said that, having said that, for, for, for those of those that might play this game that aren't, we, we suggested that just a little additional flavor on a Yuriki and what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to engage mm-hmm. would make it easy at a, at a con game where perhaps no one's played L5R or listened to. Yeah, and to your credit, um, I I definitely I gave these guys all little system cheat sheets that they could look at. Um, and before we played this this last time, I threw in the seven tenets of Bushido. So seven things that they should keep in mind. But I think Dusty makes a great point. I should make a little handout or a note card or something that says, you are a Yoriki. You are a deputy to a magistrate. These are the things you have the authority to do. These are the things that you do not have the authority to do. Yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, that'd yeah. be perfect. Yeah. And so, just that, that, that short. And I think that that is definitely a room for improvement if I'm going to be bundling this as sort of a, it's a, you want to play L5R, here's your first one-shot kit. Um, because the it's sort of evolved from, hey, here's an adventure that I like, and it's kind of turning into the application that I'm using it for, which is getting people into L5R. And I think I need to lean harder into that and just make sure that I can just do that part of it. I think with that being said, I think one thing that is really working well on the side of this adventure is you can tell that it's been really well play tested and you've put a lot of work into tweaking and refining based off positive and negative feedback. And that really showed in the game we played. Yeah, I could tell we were, we were running version three. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I think. Yeah, uh, there were definitely some snags the first couple of times I ran it, but I have smoothed those over. So actually, you know, I I didn't necessarily feel that. I like after we dropped off the call, Dusty said, "Well, what did you think?" And I'm like, "Wait, you had a what did you think conversation after I left?" Yes, Uh, did we? Did we? I wasn't there for that. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it it worked the next day because I left to go check on Margo. Well, it was at some point. Brian had a conversation with himself in his head. In my (laughs) mind, in my mind, we were in the same room. I forgot we were on Skype. Yeah. So yes, Uh, but Dusty said, and I'm again, we're not trying to blow smoke or anything but dusty and we agreed you're a really great gm and i didn't think in terms of wow this has really been play tested i thought in terms of well damn tanner is a great gm thank you it's a little bit of column a a little bit of column b i i've had a lot of experience running this game and i've had a lot of experience running this adventure so i think those both sort of helped well what is being a g being a good gm other than trying it and admitting fault and learning from it yeah. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Well, what's what's ma- what's mastering anything? Yeah. Like, like right. very rare is someone who just is a total natural talent. Natural talent's a myth that Hollywood likes to push into movies. Oh, you know, you're a natural saxophone player. Whatever. <laughs> no such thing. Deliberate practice. There's no such thing. Yeah. Humanity didn't evolve around the saxophone. <laughs> anyway, um, speaking of Tanner being a great GM, so Tanner, 
So, so one, one moment that hugely impressed me, um, you had us all describe our characters and I had described, I, I really thought of my, of, of my character as someone based on the character sheet who loses lots of duels, but wins lots of fights. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of, and, that is the lion's MO. Yep. They don't and hit so, first, but they hit last. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I, I had described him as having wounds on his sword hand from losing lots of, of duels to first blood. And then like an hour and a half later, Tanner remembers this detail and brings it up, not, not to give spoilers, well, spoiler alert, as we're looking at a body and the wounds on the body, Tanner's like, Matsu, from your scars, you recognize, and, and this whole description about how my background that I made up on the spot at the start of this game, like those scars were not part of the character sheet. I made it up. That was wonderful. And Tanner incorporated it that quickly. Do you so, want to know my secret technique for that? <laughs> jotting stuff down? pure dumb luck um you happened i knew that (laughs) well yeah i did jot it down but um i mean i planned that that clue was on the body because it's a clue that made sense but you also had the forethought of saying okay what's a what kind of wounds would a guy who strikes second have and i think me i had that thought process when i was writing the adventure and setting up that um that clue and you had that thought process when making up your character so when you said it a light bulb instantly went up in my mind, and I said, I'm going to jot this down, and I'm going to have a a burning sensation appear on your forearms when you uh, <laughs> when you take a look at this body. So I think that that was a collaboration. I don't get all the credit for that. I think that was definitely you bringing your logic and immersing yourself in the world to think um, about that. And like we said, immerse, immersing yourself in L5R makes the experience richer, and I think that that's a really good little you know snapshot of that. I love that about rpgs where it's not just one good idea it's a lot of good ideas and sometimes they fall flat and sometimes they come together and something really really interesting i don't use the phrase magical Eh, i'll use it magical happens i'm feeling magical you know (laughs) so i also love tanner that that as a gm you gave us a lot of leeway to tell the story we wanted to tell and there were several moments when i would say oh no we're already in front of this guy and i just thought of what I would have said to Mike's character before we walked in. And Tanner's like, I go ahead and say it, go for it. So I, I I really appreciated, especially for a one shot. Mm -hmm. The leeway, because there's always this tension, right? Of if I play too conservative and I make sure I say absolutely every little thing before I advance the plot, then you never advance the plot. You advance the plot really slowly and it's boring. But if you advance the plot too quickly, then you find yourself standing before, you know, the daimyo, not having had an important side conversation or not having shared an important clue with your friend, the courtier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, that's a jab at me mispronouncing it quite frequently <laughs> with your friend, the courtier, but, but Tanner, let us have that leeway. Yeah. So I, I like to think of that in term. Thank, I appreciate the compliment again. Yeah. Thank you. But um, it, it's one of those things where I operate at the speed of cinematic um, pacing. Where in a movie, you never see the guy stop and have a huddle after every time they talk to one another, or to talk to a new NPC, or get a new clue. Things move quickly, and if we need to, we can flashback, but there's really no audience here except the four of us. Well, I mean, we're going to share it, so... Barring that, there's no audience here except the four of us playing it, so I don't mind at all if we have a quick little flashback or you say, oh, would I have mentioned that to Mike's character? Yeah, sure, of course. Like, if it would have appeared to you in your mind now, I mean, we're moving through the world with our human brains in the story faster than your characters would. So, like, your characters have time to think about stuff like that. And for me, what it comes down to is 
I could say no, and I have said no to stuff like that in the past, um, in other games, other situations, obviously. But what I come down to is, would the experience be enriched if, or made worse if I hit him with a gotcha right here? There are times to hit hit your players with gotchas, I think, honestly. Um, but only when it would make the situation more fun and not more frustrating because it was just a logistical conversation that you didn't have the chance to have or whatever. That's that's boring. Like, why, why bother that? Oh, but did you say that you wore armor to the fight? You didn't? Well, your character <laughs> has no reason to wear armor, so now that's interesting, like, that you didn't remember to do that. So I go either way with it, but I just try to judge on... You know, it's just about reading the room and seeing if, you know, is it worth it to zing these guys on this? No, who cares? Just let them have, let them say what they wanted to have retroactively said. Also, really good tension in the story. So, Tanner, as as we neared the end, and, and I want to be really careful about spoilers here, um, as we neared the end of, of who's behind this and what's going on and, and figuring that out, we didn't have it figured out. We had pieces of it figured out. Um, and we had enough figured out to intercede and, and, and to be able to to slow down what, what the what the quote-unquote bad guys, antagonists, were up to. But I love that there was tension the whole time with, hey, what's going on? And Tanner was great about sitting back and letting us talk amongst ourselves and figure out what we're investigating and what clues we're going after and what we're going to say to who and why and what that means. Um, and he's great about sitting back and not giving hints. And as a GM... Man, it's tempting to give a hint sometimes. Yeah. And uh, and Tanner, you didn't do that, and that made the game better. I love that there was this tension the whole time of we felt like we were making progress, but there's that uncomfortable sensation that have we made enough progress? And that's a great tension to feel. I mean, the whole point of the game is uh, of RPGs is that dramatic tension and, and feeling that and experiencing that. So great job with that. Thank you. I think specifically, I can think back to, to a point in the game where we were getting ready to to go ahead and, and and make our determination, make our make our judgment to take back, and I think we actually stopped and said, "Let's wait, let's try this one more thing before we before we sign off on this." And and we took that chance, and it, it, because of that tension that was there, that we didn't feel comfortable that we had it right. And I think you did a really good job of walking us through that that set of events and also that set of information to to help us figure out if, if we were doing that adventure correctly. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do as a GM sometimes. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say that the first time I ran this adventure, that was not the case. Um, we, I, I think that that is just sort of a byproduct of me realizing and sort of adopting the gumshoe method of mystery design, which is I give you the tools. I don't tell you how to build the piece of furniture. I give you every single, uh, by the end of that uh, your second day of investigation, you had every core piece of information that you needed to arrive at the quote unquote correct conclusion, whatever correct means in Rokugan. <laughs> um, and you guys did. And uh, I mean, I don't want to spoil it if you're going to listen to it, but that's you didn't necessarily act on that 100%, which I think is a very interesting choice in the context. But I, you know, I taught you how to ride the bike, but I didn't put the training wheels on sort of uh and i i like letting you guys sort of get into that zone of recreational discomfort <laughs> that rpgs seem to be sort of predicated on and um if you're a gm doing this at home and you kind of want to know how to do that one really easy trick um put a timer on your adventure this adventure had a timer where you knew 
when this event happens two days from now, if this isn't fixed or resolved, a ba- very bad thing will likely happen. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a it's not a ticking time bomb. You can't look at the timer and see you have five minutes left on the bomb. It's a oh, I don't want to risk it because I really don't know what's going to happen, or I don't really want to I don't want to find out what happens if we dally too long and so by doing that and keeping track of time i made so that every scene mattered and every um interaction that you chose to have meant that you were spending the afternoon not talking to somebody who not talking to somebody else and so there were real decisions to be made there and like i said this did not spin off the top of my dome in session this came from (laughs) several hours of preparing this session and then three or four sessions of running it and refining that. So it's not something that you can improvise unless you're one of the best GMs in the world. I think it's something that comes with practice and uh, dedication to it. And if you're listening to this and you're like, gosh, that's great advice, but, but how do I apply it at the table? What Tanner actually did is after an interaction or after we decided to do something or after we finished up something, he'd he'd tell us, okay, I think it's probably about, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, it's probably getting, you know, we do something else. Okay, it's probably around six. Hey, you know what? It might be a little late to show up to this guy's pavilion or, or, or place. But he kept reminding us of roughly how much time he thought everything that we did took. Yep. And that was a great way to move it along. And I think it'd be really easy as players to try to uh, game that and mm-hmm. say, well, no, that, what, that wasn't two hours. It was probably... But you know, we went with it because we saw it for what it was as a way to move the adventure forward. And, and you know, the the feedback I, I used, Tanner, immediately having listened to it again to our game multiple times, the word I used was smooth. And I used that word because, again, I could tell you were running this adventure. You, you'd, you'd been very practiced. Mm-hmm. You'd done this several times. And I keep thinking about this is a show built, this show right here, RPGLL, is built on negative feedback and learning and growing and we're not giving you any negative feedback and i feel like we're shortchanging you i want one roast from each person before i leave tonight we're, we're gonna try but, it, but it, it so showed that you had play tested this oh yeah 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 i can't so so a plea to any gms out there listening that they're gonna run a game at con please play test it at least once at least once and get one round of feedback on it before you bring it to the public eye where um, you know, your friends are, I, I think if you're playing for a home game with somebody that, you know, not strangers, I think friends are more likely to give honest feedback and stuff. Um, yeah. but if you go to a convention and you just sat down with four hours for, with strangers and you say, how was it? How can I improve? I think at that point it's a little bit too late because I think the, like you sort of described with your mace, uh, misadventures, it's hard to get, <laughs> it's hard to give honest feedback to a stranger just straight up. So Finish yeah. the boat. especially if you're mad. Yeah. 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 So yeah. like, yeah, like Dusty said, just play test it once if you have the opportunity to, but you know, if not at least hand the adventure to somebody who is an experienced GM or put it online and say, Hey, if you were a GM and you were going to run this, where do you see points of friction here? Where do you see snags and stuff here? So I, I think just getting even a single round of feedback, obviously, is very important. So, Mike, I want you to talk about Tanner's Roll20 usage and how impressed we were with that. I was super impressed with the implementation of Roll20. So so maybe a little history here. We, we've we dabbled in Roll20 a couple of times. We uh, our, our, our group is going through a little bit of change where we can't all quite get together physically, so we've been looking at alternatives for remote gaming. And uh, we... Skype's not it. Skype's not it. Um <laughs> 
Maybe maybe once we get Dusty some new hardware, we'll get him on Discord and yeah. and, and we'll use Discord. But I, I think the thing I really liked about your Roll Twenty implementation was that it was simple and it was minimalistic, and it was it was very utilitarian and very effective in its use. Um, so I think uh, I, I think probably the the thing I found most beneficial is that it was it was primarily used as a that cast of characters list, right? So mm-hmm. you would reveal characters and their affiliation as they came into the story, and then we easily had a list of characters we could refer back to because they had very complicated, difficult to remember names. Yeah, this wasn't a map grid instance of Roll Twenty. It was more like a PowerPoint slide. Yeah, with Tanner selectively revealing elements as we came across them. And using Roll20, not for a map, but for this developing PowerPoint slide so that we didn't have to, I mean, I still took a page of notes because that's how I I play. It's how I stay engaged, is taking notes. But I didn't need to because the Roll20 was so unique. I've not seen Roll20 used not on the grid. So Tanner, that was awesome. Yeah, so um, I actually listened to the episode that you guys put out this week as of time of recording to date the show. But, um, Brian, you said specifically that you prefer combat on a grid. Um, yeah. I know that, obviously, um, Roll20... Rule twenties grid is not um, the same as obviously like doing it at a home game, having like yeah. a, a battle mat. Um, do you think that the, because there were a couple combats in this and spacing ended up mattering more than I think it did in a lot of combats in L five R, at least in my experience. So, do you think that this would have been enriched? Imagine if we were playing together, would you have preferred a battle mat as opposed to what we did, which was all theater of the mind combat? That is a great question, and. As I have shown on the show before, as people have heard, my memory, when I think back to something, <laughs> it's more it's more subjective to how I felt about something than as to how something actually was. So there have been games that we've played off a grid that, in my mind, felt like it was on a grid. And then there we played a whole campaign on a grid that I effectively remembered as theater of the mind. <laughs> I don't so know like, if that's a good or bad thing to get those it, mixed it, up. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's it's just how my brain works. Um, but I didn't feel like at least with my the the big encounter that I had, mm-hmm. I don't feel that a grid would have been necessary at all because effectively the exchange was. Um, I think I rolled twice in that, uh, not counting initiative. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think you rolled your attack and your damage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, so no, I I uh, did the I. No, maybe I didn't. Yeah, so, it, was, it was one. I'm attack. pretty sure you it was your one attack. I, I, I had. Didn't I have a stance where I held? I held, didn't I, for the first? Yes, yeah, that's I, true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so and I don't think that would have specifically. <laughs> I don't think that specifically would have mattered whether it was on a grid or not. But I know, I know, you're not asking about roll twenties grid specifically. Yeah. But man, like the time we tried to do roll twenty with a grid and. I think I think the problem when we did it is that we were all in the same room at the same time. Instead of having a grid on the table, right. it felt very, it, we felt constricted yeah. uh, in that respect. But doing it remotely, I don't know. Actually, it might not have been that bad. I'm going to challenge you on that. I have a feeling if we were playing on a grid, right, and he moved two player tokens against your player token, I don't think you would have held that attack. I think you would have rushed in and swiped him with your sword. 
you know, you're probably right. <laughs> uh, you probably, you really, you probably are right. Yeah. I think because there wasn't some, some icon threatening your icon, I think that allowed you to play a little more passively. And I'm a twitchy. More I'm, I'm twitchy. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And not your character. You. Yeah. You. Me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's true. What about you guys? Do, awesome. you, do you think that this would have been improved with a grid or not? Or do you think it was fine the way it was? No, not at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely not. Okay. I, I, I A grid would have limited me as far as like envisioning what the character looks like. Mm. And, and, and the spaces and, and, and you know where we were. And, and honestly, the village, like, how do I put this? A grid? I doubt you would have found. Yeah, I doubt you would have found a map that, that, in my head, I was picturing this really like it's along a river. It's like muddy and dirty, and people are trying to keep clean. But, but I was picturing this really muddy, dirty thing. And a lot of the maps that you tend to find for Roll Twenty are really like cartoonishly clean. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like maps that take place in in you know what's He Man's universe called Eternia. Theria. Wait, Eternia. Eternia. Why are, you are asking that question? <laughs> in the moment, I came up with it. I, I think it's Cybertron, it. isn't it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but uh, the maps are always like cartoonishly clean, and something about visuals sometimes take me out of it. I was more yeah. immersed by yeah. the lack of a grid, I, and Mike was free to be immersed. Like maybe you were picturing something cleaner, yeah, or different, or more photorealistic than cartoonic. I, 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 I cartoonish, not cartoonic. Um, I don't know. For, for me, Tanner, no, I think a grid would have would have taken away. Okay, that that is how I felt too, but I just want to make sure. Obviously, I think if you GM anything enough, you realize that perception on one side of the screen is very different than perception if you're a player. And so I always like to realign that and make sure that it didn't feel like too off or too confusing because we basically split that up into two different combat encounters that were running sort of intertwined with each other, which was, a, a, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, it felt like a little bit of a challenge to me. Um, just cause I didn't expect that, but I think we rolled with it and we made it work because Hey, it was over on one attack. So yeah, I have a question for you actually. What's up? So, so we broke the cardinal rule of RPGs or, or so D and D fourth edition would have had you believe mm. five years ago. We split the party. You did actually a couple times, I think. Yeah. But for us, it made sense. Like there were situations where we found it necessary to leave someone behind. I don't want to spoil things to leave someone behind for a very specific reason, purpose, you know, to, to, to fulfill a duty. Right. And, uh, and and for others to, to venture out. That way, if some of us were lost, the other was, whatever. We felt it necessary and realistic to split the party. Right. Now, did, did you have a couple of guys peel off because of that? 1,000%, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the, and, so did, when we split the party, were you inside like, oh, no? A little or, bit? Oh, yes. No, no, no. I was, I was a little bit like, well, this is going to complicate things a little bit, but... Um, I mean, we can talk in vague generalities for those who don't want to... I mean, this wasn't part of my prep at all, the fact that you guys split, so I don't think it's a spoiler. But, Brian, your character went and did nothing yeah. for a while. And yeah. this was the part of the game... In the This is about the halfway point of the game where um, I felt low energy and low engagement from you. So I wanted to yeah. make sure that I didn't... We didn't sidle you out and just make us watch a 15 or 20-minute combat. I got so anxious when those two guys split off. Good. I, I was engaged like, oh, you. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, crap. Because I thought back to our uh, the game that we played in D&D 5e where Chris basically engaged, I forgot if it was, was it a crane maybe, uh, in a duel. No, he, a lion, he was a crane. He was a, was a lion. He, he engaged a lion and the lion and he, yeah. The lion destroyed yeah. him. Yeah. And yeah. I just kept going back to that because this was our first real encounter. And 
fortunately it worked out right but, uh, my, my fear was that the thing that that mike and i's character were going to do was going to be a total ruse and yeah. a distraction yeah which is why we left brian behind and my fear was that you were going to get all the bad guys yeah yeah well uh, yeah you know, actually it worked out like I, that was the point when i realized hey my character is kind of a badass yeah but here's the here's the compliment to the to the game um is that we were like oh oh no we're we're being called away and we have a really good compelling reason to go over here but the thing we're trying to protect is over there mm-hmm. so yeah. i think i think in real life like cops yeah would, would have split up i yeah. totally agree you guys made the absolutely correct in in-game choice but i just had to make sure that i had to make the thing that made sense also be fun because oftentimes in games there are plenty of things that make sense but aren't fun and or like yeah, fun true. to play through yeah exactly yeah so i just wanted to make sure especially for brian because i could tell that you were um not disengaging or anything but i could tell that there was a little bit of friction there so i wanted to make sure to keep you involved oh. and that made my day that was that was that was fun. that was a lot of fun okay, that was good. i mean that was a high I, and i smoked chicken that day so i you know it was a really good day for me that was the, that was the high point. <laughs> i'll take that compliment man that's a good compliment so let's talk about feedback on ourselves, and I'll, I'll call myself out first. So listening, having listened to this a couple times, Brian's shaking his head no. He knows what I'm going to say. It's fine. We can have the argument again on the air. That's fine. I want, I want people to hear it. Um, my God, I, I am the classic GM that gets to play. I am such the classic GM that gets to play. I talked for so much of that stream, even though my character was the bad courtier. So M- Brian, specifically. Uh, when his character was, was ready to enter into combat, I had read through all the character sheets. I'd gotten really excited about the game. Um, I had digested what everyone could do. And uh, Brian made a decision, and I was like, Brian, are you sure? Do you want to reread? He's like, no, yeah, do it. I'm like, are you positive? <laughs> Don't, wouldn't you like to remain in center stance so you can use Ayajitsu instead of Kenjitsu? <laughs> and, uh, and Brian ultimately did. And, and I knew it was bad as I was doing it, but I couldn't stop myself. And I was, I was fine with it. And that, that does so. Here's the thing: as GM, it's you for, do, you, it's it's, you, it's you, arguably forgivable in a new system first session. It, it, as as a, in game, it happens. Like it's not like Mike will say it to me, or I might say it to somebody else. It's more likely Mike's going to say it to me. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but it, it it happens, and that that's part of collaborative play. I still regret it. I don't. It, made, t- it made for an awesome scene. When I play, I need to shut up more, dude. Same. I am the so shadow of the cabal behind the scenes um tanner the player uh or the gm here i i ran shadow of the cabal as the gm and i'm taking a break and i'm letting dakota step up and he's gonna run a game of knights black agents for us and i am super excited to do that and i'm super terrified that i'm gonna be the worst backseat gm for a player who already <laughs> has trepidation about p- gming in general and playing for radio and like i'm gonna try so hard not to be that guy because to Dusty's point, I mean, as the GM, you have the natural sense of like, not only tactical advice, which is one thing that, yeah, like that's not great to give, but I, like Brian said, it ended up being such a non-issue, but I mean, like me wanting to be the one who drives the story forward. That is the role I am as the GM. I, well, I'm the one who is keeping the pacing up. I'm the one who's making sure things happen, that no lulls happen. And it's hard to do that, not do that as a player once you're, once you're in that role. So I'll leave it there. I don't want to beat myself up too badly, but I've listened to it a couple of times, and I've got, got to, got to shut up more when I play. The second thing I'll call myself out on <laughs> is for all that I was interested in Brian's character sheet and his Ijitsu versus his Kenjitsu, 
I never played my disadvantage. Shame. And really, I know. I know. I, I was. I, I can't remember the exact word, but it was like willful or something where I always had to have my own way. And I never played that. And, and. Well, you, maybe you played that, you know, as Dusty and not as your character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. I'll show you guys Dusty's character sheet later. We'll see what advantages you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone had every character sheet. Yeah. 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 But I was the only one that had read them all and digested them. He, and, and he was. It's true. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. That, that's that's me. Brian? Okay. So my problem is always is I tend to be more of a passive player. And I tend to play a one shot like I'm playing a campaign. And I've got to remind myself, I don't have time to catch up and be more involved in later games. And it always happens. And that was primarily the the um, issue here. Now, I did I did catch my uh, disadvantage, and I was able to use that. I did read my character sheet, contrary to what you know what <laughs> we might think. But <laughs> but I didn't. But like it, a lot of it didn't necessarily register. And I think I assumed that in the course of the game, I would have a chance to refer to it more often than I did. And in the game, really, we only had to use it, what, once or twice when it comes to some of the the techniques and the skills and everything that we have. Right. So so I I should have read I should have read and understood the, the sheet more uh, sheet better instead of assuming that I would learn it in the course of the game. Um, but yeah, uh, I was much I was a, the passive player that I often always am. So uh, I think for myself, I also fell into an old habit that I'm still struggling to break of. I always play the cop, right? Even if it's not part of my character sheet, that's sometimes the role I just wind up. So are you the cop or do you probe? It's a little bit of both, right? So, so Hey, some cops our, probe. They well, yeah. do. They do. So I, I kind of go back and forth between cop, gumshoe, detective, but it's it's kind of always that... I'm going to get to the bottom of this come hell or high water mm-hmm. and I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. And I think I, I especially struggled that with this because I was trying to, to balance that against the, uh, the, the courtier role. Um, and I think what made that even more difficult for me was understanding what exactly that courtier role was. I think at the beginning of the game, I actually asked, so, what exactly can I do with this courtier skill? Right. Uh, Which is a totally, uh, that's that's a very good question to ask because you don't want to, you know, bark up the wrong tree and think this is my mind control skill and I can talk anybody into doing whatever I want. I think it's very good, especially with a new GM, new game, to figure out where those guidelines are and where those bumpers are so you can play in between them. So I'm the reason I mentioned the probe thing, I think it's not that you're necessarily always playing a cop. Yeah. I think it's your gamer brain kicking in. Oh, yeah. And no, you're that's... probing to understand what your guardrails are. And so, like, I'm going back to Tomb of Annihilation, that game that we played. Yeah. And in that, yeah, yeah. yeah and in that, you touched every single square. You looked in every single nook and cranny. And that's kind of like what a, a, a detective does. Tomb of Horrors, you mean? Yeah. Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. Tomb of Annihilation is the new version. It's it's the book. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. We, we played Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, with Tomb of Horrors. I'm thinking back to the Tomb of Horrors game. And, I mean, yeah, you... you touched every stone you looked in every nook and cranny yeah. that's just how you play that is how I and play. i think that's more of a detective more so than just the straight up cop you know i'm gonna call myself out in a way that i didn't even think of when i did the show notes here's how much of a control freak i am and tanner can attest to this when tanner sent us the characters 
<laughs> Look at Mike. Mike's nodding. He knows. I, I read them all, and I was like, you know, here's here's what I think everyone should play. <laughs> and, and I was and, like, and how? He's like, yeah, I'll play the cop. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> See, I built that character. That's really interesting that you took the cop with him because I think looking at that character's skills and his disadvantages and stuff, I think that you could totally arrive at that. I built him to be the sleaziest used car salesman I could. Like that's what the uh-huh. the Yasuki, the the crab courtiers are. They are the ones who wheel and deal. They deal in commerce. They intimidate, and they generally don't give a crap about any any social standards as long as they get get paid and get their way. So for I, I th- our yeah, for our troop that if for our troop real quick, and I'm sorry, it seems to me like that would be the character that Nathan would play. You know, mm. you're absolutely and right. And he would knock it out of the park. Yeah. He would, yeah. So, question for you, Mike. Yeah. So, I I, I did that pre-digestion for you of Tanner's pre-made characters. You regurgitated it like a mama bird. Which is an awful habit. Because he knows I don't do my homework. That's what I was going to ask you. That's what I was going to ask you. My fear, and the reason I do these things, it, well, number no, that's not true. The reason I do these things is on me. I'm, I'm a control freak, and I know that. And everyone who knows me knows that. But, uh, but Mike, I, I had a sense that you might not have a chance to read the character before the game. I was trying to make it easy for you to engage, knowing you as your usual GM and how you play. Was that appreciated or super offensive and annoying? No, I was fine with it. I was A-OK with that. Would you have done the homework and read the characters before before we actually started the Skype? I actually did. I just hadn't had a chance to reply to it. Oh, I was oh, absolutely fine. I've with, got with to the stop the control freaks. No, that's that's okay. I I, I think it's good. I, I think it's a <laughs> it's a safety net that keeps our games from falling apart. As as long as your control freak and my control freak aren't control freaking the same thing, I am entirely okay with you being a control. That's freak. true. Yeah. I, I yeah, I control freak D and D probably worse than anything else. Well, I say D and D RPGs worse than anything else in our friendship. We are we are. In real life friends, um, well, I don't, I don't control freak anything else that we do. Yeah, it's right. only that. Yep. So hopefully that's forgivable, but still, oh god. I mean, what that's it sounds like, what I'm hearing here as someone who is sort of the outsider to this, is that you guys all have, you three have a very good social dynamic worked out. Where with anybody else, you would be stepping on anybody's toes, but you guys have it worked out, and nobody gets bugged by each other. So I don't know. Yeah, fingers crossed, right? Yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. I mean, I've known Mike since I was what four. Five, four, five, whatever, so yeah, 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 yeah. All right, fair enough. Yeah. But I, I've still got to stop because you you had read the characters. <laughs> you had read the characters, and it's it's so much. But I, I should have let you pick. No, I re- no that, that's okay because because normally when it comes to character picking, I don't like picking first. I'm fine playing yeah. whatever, and I like I like letting other people. I have was their pick first. I was always picked for last for dodgeball, so I just you know I'm the last for everything. That's how I go. <laughs> I I read the character that you picked for me. <laughs> <laughs> man <laughs> and i tried to even i put in the email like if you don't want to play this let me know let me, I'll, i'm willing to do anything but uh geez yeah control freak all right to finish the show out so tanner if you don't mind why don't you give us feedback as players so we we play um in, in our home group mostly with each other and and have for years with a little bit of venturing out into con but we really don't play online so you're our first like guest GM, and I'm really excited to hear your commentary on, on our play styles and what we might learn from you. Sure, absolutely. So, um, like I said at the top, I I think you guys all did a pretty phenomenal job um, of overall getting into the characters, understanding the world, asking the right questions, going to the right places, all that kind of stuff. Um, there now, 
feedback isn't useful if I blow smoke on you guys <laughs> the whole time. So I'm going to, um, like I said, I think it's an eight, eight and a half out of 10, but there are a couple things that um, sort of stuck out to me. And this might just be because of my play style that I'm used to, that I've sort of drilled into my players that uh, different groups have different assumptions about. Um, one thing is that there were a couple times where you guys were rolling before I called for a roll. And that is something that is innocuous, but it can really set up um, hard, not hard feelings, but maybe different expectations sometimes. Um, There's one example that I could, that I remember specifically where Dusty, I believe it was during the first crime scene investigation when you were looking out in the garden and you wanted to go to the garden wall and you Mm -hmm. said, okay, I'm going to roll investigation on the garden wall. Oh, I got a 17. So in my mind, there was no clue at the garden wall. So I had to, with your successful role, I had to tell you that you successfully found no clues, which <laughs> is, it's a, it's a hard thing. I mean, it makes sense. Like you, like you succeed the role. You are confident that there is nothing to be found here. Like there's nothing on paper that's wrong about that or like that would be incorrect, but do you know what I mean when that feels a little bit differently? Like you think success should mean finding something interesting and success meant not finding something interesting. Sure. And and that doesn't stick out to me at all. So in the moment I was totally fine with it, mm-hmm. but you're right. Rolling before it's called, like I've had that with, uh, with, well, let's call it problem players who want to use that to, you know, maybe if they rolled great, all of a sudden they're touting, Oh, I got a nat 20 though. Yeah. And if, yeah. They, and if they didn't roll great, so I, I can see where that that's an issue, especially yeah, in a new system. For sure. So I think that, that, that's another example of the backseat GM syndrome. I don't know if that's a backseat GM thing. I think that there you can just see you in a player. Like if this is a little bit easier to tell at a physical table when you can get a better read on the energy as opposed to over like a Skype call or something. But you can see, all right. Jim is really itching to roll dice. He hasn't rolled in a while. He's playing with the dice in his hand. He wants to do something. So by golly, you got to let him <laughs> make some sort of roll. <laughs> and I think that that's just where you guys were. You were excited. You were engaged with it. So I'm not going to fault you for that. And I don't think that it was the case of you wanted to substitute a role for role play or like actually describing what you were doing. I think you were just like, this is an unfamiliar system. The dice are the one tool and language that you as the player and the GM have in common for success or failure. So you want to get those rolling. And I don't think that's a bad instinct at all, but for me, it's, I'm very picky about when I call for roles, especially in this scenario where there are clues that I'm going to give you without a role. Um, when you went to the dojo near the end of the adventure, you got, you got the clue, no role needed. And Mm. something like that, where if you suddenly say, okay, I want to look around the dojo and give me a role. I would have given you the the information anyway, but say you rolled a four instead of a TN 15 or a 20, and I gave you that clue anyway. Now you think that I'm going to be, you know, fudging dice or something. And it, it puts me as the GM in a situation where I feel like I've fudged or something like that, because like you going over to the garden wall and not finding anything, there was no interesting outcome of failure on that. Because like failure on that would have meant you're not sure if there's a clue here. And then we spend the next 45 minutes of you searching the garden wall. Not saying that that's what you would have done, but that's, that is a no. reasonable outcome that a group could arrive at, you know? So that's one thing I would say. And um, that's great feedback. Yeah. And my players, I've had to, even as late as 20 sessions into Shadow of the Cabal, there's actually a really good moment. Um, 
not a good moment, but there's a moment where this happens in Shadow of the Cabal where um, Dakota and his character Kitsuki, who is the investigator who does the investigation, um, I told them this was during the Winter Court arc when the cliff collapsed, if that jogs your memory. And the same thing happened, and Dakota said, oh, well, before we're ushered out of here, I want to take a look down to see if there's any foul play or tampering on this cliff. And before I could say no or don't bother rolling, he rolled and he got like a 55 or something. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to tell him, you don't see anything, which is not a good thing to hear when you get a 55. You want to see everything, dadgummit, (laughs) you know, with a 55? Like, that, that that is a superhuman role. He should see everything, and so... It led to friction between me and him that got cut from the show of just a quick conversation of being like, well, I I got a 55 and I'm like, yeah, and you didn't see anything. That is the clue sometimes. (laughs) And so it it just feels and then he walked away with feeling like, oh, I wasted such a good lucky role when there was nothing to be found. And this isn't Dakota's fault. This isn't my fault or anything. I don't I'm not trying to rag on him at all, but it's just I think what you should default to a GM prompting for roles most of the time. And maybe I should have said that at the top and said, Hey, don't bother rolling. This adventure, you know, has a different sort of structure. You're not always going to roll to get clues. So, you know, if you're looking around, maybe just roll or ask before you roll, because I might just be willing to give you the information without it. Maybe a little blurb at the top would have been better, but I don't know. That's awesome feedback. That's, that's great feedback. And I'm going to fanboy on Shadow of the Cabal for a second and, and not give any spoilers to the show for those of our listeners who might go to it. But call me dense, Tanner, but not having the benefit of following you on Twitter yet at that time when that arc was going on and not having the meta commentary on the game, the Yuriki's treatment of that, of that young lion, Bushi, mm-hmm. that they dealt with was the first inkling I had where I was like, I'm not sure if I like the Yuriki anymore. Yeah, that that was the first wake up moment was the conversation and the things they did to that guy. And I, I hope I hope I'm just saying enough that our listeners are like, "Ooh, I want to go listen to this show. But it for me, I don't know how early you intended it to be, you know, hey, these players are not the good guys. But that was that moment for me. It wasn't during the uh, the burnination early on. No, it wasn't. To, to me, I guess I was conditioned to, to actual plays that are a little bit more shallow. So for me, it was still the the Starship Troopers, to borrow a reference from earlier in the podcast, where the murder hobos are making things happen and telling a story. Yeah. It wasn't until the lion where I was like, wait a minute, critical thinking. So burn anyway, a man alive. Show. Yeah, burn a man alive. You know, you get a second chance, but be mean to a jerk. Hey, maybe you're a bad guy. Don't bully the police. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make anything right. No, no but I appreciate well, your side. I, I will take yeah. that compliment. Thank you. Um, and, and I'll take the feedback. So, so always, you know, I haven't been able to model taking feedback very well on the show before. I usually blast myself, and then and then Mike and Brian forgive me. But uh, when taking feedback, it's really important, I think, to acknowledge it and say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm really gonna think on that. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I did put you in an awkward spot. I'm gonna internalize that before I say anything. Because if if, I, if you say too much, when you get feedback, those GMs that might be nervous to ask for it. When someone gives you feedback, if you're immediately Defensive talking about it, or, it, yeah. it, yeah, that'll shut them down from giving feedback in the future. But so here's the thing, like that's, yeah, that was in that instance that was you, but that's representative of the game that we play. Yeah, I've never even really thought about it. We probably have put you in that situation. Like oftentimes, you know, we'll just roll. Yeah, I'm going to do a roll. I think there's a level of system mastery there 
in in Savage Worlds, which is a new system for us, you guys have not done that. I've called for every roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so it is good feedback. In, that in, I fi- in, fi- in 5e, I know we, we did- were also comfortable with that. Yeah. And, and I think you're thinking of combat. Yeah. Where when it's your turn, mm-hmm. you are going to roll an attack. Sure. I, I, and, I know we do that in combat, but if you know, like, oh, I'm going to do a history check, or I'm going to do a you know a wisdom check. You know, we do that, and well, you say, and you say, yeah, go ahead, but we call for it first. The way I deal with that, so so I guess you're right. It is awkward. I deal with it in a different way than, than than Tanner when I am on the GM side of that. The way I deal with that is before when you would fail, I would do the stupid thing and say, well, it doesn't work, and I leave it at that. Now I'm like, not only did that not work, now everything is much worse. Yes, <laughs> that failing yeah. forward. That's yeah. that's a great piece of advice, and I mean, if that conversation of saying, hey guys. I think the the first thing you should do is say, "Hey guys, maybe you should wait until I call for roll because I call for rolls thoughtfully, and it is important when they happen and when they don't." That's the first thing you should do. Second thing you should do if that doesn't work is <laughs> to learn them their lesson. I guess is to uh, <laughs> is to make things bad. I don't know. That's bad advice, but I think you should just you know have a chat with it out of out of game. And this is a habit I'm trying to pick up for Legend of the Five Rings Fifth Edition, which by the beta there is a literal seven part section of when do you call for a role and that's the section that in most games you skip right past it's like the section of like what's a role-playing game ah don't worry about it when do you call for a role when things happen sure the game absolutely is balanced on when you call for that role and it's like you only here are the four criteria of when you call for a role and if you say no to any one of those don't call for a role and so that's sort of the mind space that at least i'm trying to get myself into where you know roles have to be thoughtful because they matter they should change the story and you don't always want the story to change because of random chance at a time where it's not appropriate and you know some people might call that railroading or taking away player agency or something like that but i don't really see it as that i guess uh, if it's abused it can be but i didn't feel like in that case like that just made me have to think on my feet for a second and and put me in a friendly uncomfortable spot for like half a second but we dealt with it so yeah yeah again perfect thank you yeah so that that was my biggest piece that i came in with but otherwise you know you guys did pretty phenomenally for your first foray into Rokugan. So now Tanner requested when we were on a break for us to, to roast him. So let's go around the table. What do we have? Man, I have literally <laughs> been sitting here this whole time trying to think of some negative feedback and I'm struggling. I mean, I'll be I mean, honest. Yeah. So like, I mean, like I said, I think you're from our one game that we played. I think you're a great GM. I like with Dusty, I am, I am all about giving constructive feedback. I have no problem. It, it, it's my job or Actually, right now it's it's my job to do that. Um, but I need, I think I would need more exposure to see trends in in things. Sure. More so again because the game it went so well. An example: a buddy at work years ago, he did magic, and it goes back to something you said earlier. Uh, he, the card game or literal illusions? Card game. No, okay. real magic actually. <laughs> yeah, real. real <laughs> we we cast real magic. Uh, so. Um, so, but there was a magic trick that he wanted me to do, and it basically involves you picking a card until you get to the one that you had. And the trick is, if you pick a card, if it's the one that he wants you to pick, he he takes it away. But if it's the one that he doesn't want you to pick, the other one goes away. And just in the course of doing it, but like the first time that I did, he showed me that trick. I selected the card that I needed to select each and every time. So it seemed like he was literally magical 
<laughs> and I would have to go through I would have to go through that a couple of times to really see how the trick is done. Yeah. So I mean, I would need a couple of games under my belt before I could really give like reasonable, real criticism. Because I mean, right now I would just be grasping at straws. Why do we as humans feel the need to dissect the magic? I know, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> we want to grow. All right, so I'll I'll close out the show. And Tanner, unless you have anything else you want to add before we finish up. Uh, no, just, I mean, you guys have been slathering me with compliments, and I do appreciate them, <laughs> but if you want to see me run a session that wasn't well-polished and was bad and was a complete mess-up and uh, went completely off the rails, uh, you can listen to RPG Lessons Learned episode 16. So, yeah, if you want to hear me play a, um, a session that, or talk about a session that went way off the rails and was not polished and had terrible expectations between player and GM, um, go listen to episode 16 of this show, RPG Lessons Learned. I get into it, and I show you how the sausage is made, (laughs) and not everybody, uh, you know, should look at me and say, oh, wow, look, he's great. This is a module I've done four times now. So if you want to see me mess up a one-shot or a one-off session that I had not run before, you can listen to that on episode 16 of this podcast you're listening to right now. It went awfully, and it was awesome. And I'll tag on to that. As a fellow GM, I have that module that I've run a bunch. Actually, I have a couple. I have Dusk that I've run many, many times, and I have Terror on the Katara, which is my own adventure, that I've run many, many times and prepared exactly to my tastes. And when I run those adventures, especially Terror on the Katara, I come off like a super polished GM, and it's very clear that Tanner had, had had run this adventure, had thoroughly playtested it, had had gotten all the tweaks and, and, and the, the rough bits out of it. It ran so smoothly. But uh, to Tanner's point, when, when I run games that are not quite as prepared, that's when I come off like a doofus and stumble my way through it, and we all have that. So if you take any lesson away from us showering Tanner with compliments, it is that preparation, and by preparation I don't mean hypothetical preparation to what your players might do. I mean experience at the table. That is what carves a, a, a good GM and, and a really good one-shot session that you might be preparing for potential players or a convention. So well said, yeah, absolutely. Playtest, playtest, playtest. Yep. Playtest it, carve away all, all the crap and leave behind the gold. And when, when, when players like us come along, all we see is the gold. Tanner, thank you so much for joining us, man. Yeah, no problem. It, it is always a pleasure to be on. Now I'm going to have to find more ways to justify being on the show or <laughs> running games for you guys. So. <laughs> we had a blast with that. So yeah. if you want to do that again, we would be glad to do it. Yeah, so. I do have a scenario that I'm wanting to write and run at a convention this fall, another L5R scenario. So I might have to spring that on you guys and be, you'll be my first try guinea pigs on it. Sweet. Oh, and, and then we can give you, and then we come off not like we're sucking up to you. Yeah, give me <laughs> <laughs> real feedback. Yeah. You get real feedback. Awesome, awesome. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening. RPG Lessons Learned. Thanks. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them Lessons Learned, and we're sharing ours with you.